the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show as we head into Hour 2. It is a delight to welcome back Brandon Weikert. He joins us every Monday to give us uh, the view around uh, the world foreign policy in the United States, defense policy in the United States. We dabble in a little bit of domestic as well. Not a lot of shows focus as much on the international, uh, particularly our threats, uh, as much as this one. There are a few, but not many. And uh, I just I see the trajectory of these things, knowing that we ignore this stuff at our peril, uh, that uh, the world is always going to be a dangerous place, and America can either uh, do its best to confront it, if not preserve itself, or succumb to it and allow many, many millions of others to succumb to the death spiral that ensues. That's why we care about it, so that 10 years from now, if that were to eventuate, God forbid, people won't say, well, what were they doing in America? Were they talking about it, or were they talking about the Kardashians being canceled? Well, <laughs> here we talk about it. Right, right Brandon Weikert? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thanks for having me on again, as always. As always. He is the publisher of The Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com. And he is the author of one of the more important books of the last year, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He spells his last name W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. I want to get to some of your writings, Brandon. But before I do, the Wall Street Journal emblazons across a special article, yep. China's Message to America. We're an equal now. Um, yep. The days of Beijing not challenging the U.S. as a global leader are over. Pretty yep. frightening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of two things. Either they're uh, doing what many other authoritarian powers in the past have done, and they're sort of uh, jumping the gun, if you will, or they know something we don't. And as you know, um, I'm, I'm very concerned that they might know something we don't. China can look at the world on an equal level. Uh, yeah. Top foreign policy, uh, Yang Zhexi uh, of of President Jinping's um, administration tells us they He's also a Politburo member. Yeah, basically a Politburo, Politburo yeah. right? Good for foreign policy, yeah. Politburo yeah. for foreign policy. While they can afford on our territory coming here to lecture us for fifteen minutes about the racial right. problems and failures of democracy in America, I don't blame them for that. The left and the Democratic Party have been writing that speech for them for 15 to 20 years. I don't know why they would be surprised to hear it echoed back. But it's not something that would have happened in a better day with greater leadership, Brandon. Well, on the one hand, you're right. But on the other hand, I remember stuff like this being done, you know, reading about stuff like this, I should say, being done by the Soviets when they would meet with Reagan and, you know, particularly before Gorbachev really took over. Uh, you know, certainly we had Khrushchev, you know, we will bury you, uh, you know, at the U.N. So we have gone through iterations where 
our enemies have, you know, used uh, things like the AIDS virus. Remember, the AIDS was uh, breaking out everywhere in, in the 1980s, and the Soviets were saying that it's more proof of America's moral failings and you know, they were using anything they could that was contemporary going on domestically in the United States as a cudgel to use against us. So on the one hand, this isn't that different, what the Chinese did. On the other hand, I think we have to... Really I'll tell you what makes it different. Ne- what makes it different, you're right, historically, you're right, totally. But what makes it different is that they did it here and they did it for 15 minutes straight. That's did, a little different. They did, certainly. And, but we do have to remember, and this is actually where I... I guess I'm on the the minority opinion okay. from the, the Trump side. I actually think that Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, while I didn't like their, their – I thought their, their demeanor and composure was a little too weak, they actually opened the meeting with going after China's human rights violations, going after their attacks in the South China Sea, going after China's cyber espionage, which has been going on for decades – even even mentioning China's uh, very bad trade practices that harm Americans. And so, you know, the content of what they said wasn't half bad. It was almost like a Diet Coke version of the stuff that Pompeo and Trump used to say. So I thought that was heartening. And and that, by the way, was why Yang Jushi and these, these others uh, responded with these sort of pathetic attempts to go after Black Lives Matter as, you know, we're racist here, supposedly. They were responding because the Americans did put them on the spot, uh, you know, in live TV, which was a nice thing to see. Um, But the the, the issue at hand here is the metrics. So whereas before with the Soviet Union, really they were only ever a military threat. They were not part of the world environment, really. They, They were sort of their own kind of counter world, their own sort of world onto themselves, the Warsaw Pact, behind the Iron Curtain, the Soviet bloc. Um, today, China, which has replaced the Soviet Union as our great bugaboo, China is fundamentally integrated into the world economy. You cannot just contain them the way we did the Soviets without having significant damage being done, not only to ourselves, but to our allies, and that's going to make potential allies who would help us to contain China very skeptical and somewhat unwilling to go full into a pro-American containment strategy, as our allies in the Cold War were so willing to do, particularly in Europe. So that's sort of the difference, and that's why I think Yang Jixi and some of these others that went to Anchorage for the Chinese could believably say you, America, no longer are qualified to lecture us from a position of strength, because really, they're the second largest economy in the world, China is. They had the only real economic growth during the pandemic, 2.3%. That's bad for them, but that'd be good for us, uh, relatively speaking. And then the IMF, of all places, has projected that Beijing, China, will in fact outstrip the United States in economic growth at some point within the next year to three years, and that the United States for the first time since 1917 will be the world's second largest economy as opposed to the world's largest economy. And I don't think we're ready for that. And I really believe that the Chinese are actually speaking factually, albeit I don't like that they're doing this, but I do think that we need to get used to the fact that we're not the only untrammeled or unchallenged superpower anymore. And we better start doing things quickly to make sure that we get back to being 
the number one power in the world again. And right now we're not. Brandon, what would you say were the um, missed opportunities or inflection points that put China here? You know, one might say it's a million things or, or 10 things. I'm not sure. But, you know, you think about what put us in competition with the Soviet Union. And you're right, I think, in how you put it, if I can cast it this way. It was primarily a military situation. Right. It wasn't military and economic and cultural, I don't think. Not the way this is. And right. so in that respect, it's pretty easy to pinpoint what the inflection points were with the Soviet Union. Certainly the acquisition right. of the nuclear weaponry. Definitely. Right. And, Definitely. of course, the expansion of their military and incursion into other lands, particularly in uh, Eastern Europe or what we used to call Eastern Europe. What were they here? What were they here? Was it? Well, I think it's interesting because until Go, the going back decades, for sure, for sure. Right. Sure. Well, until the 1980s, China's threat was really purely a military right. threat. And it was easily contained basically before, before Deng Xiaoping rose to power in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, before he, he really encouraged greater trade with America and the West, and he really put China in the orbit. I know Mao started it, but it was really Deng who really put China in the orbit of the capitalist Western powers rather than the communist uh, Soviet uh, powers. Uh, really before that, it was a military-to-military threat. And China was an agrarian, backward place. It was a cult of personality. It was very similar to North Korea, how North Korea is today. But what happened was... Let let me do this as you go into the what happened. Let me hold it over because this is a great story. And I've never... I'm not sure we've ever really talked about it. Let me me take you into the break and have you pick up on that on the other side of the break. Can we do that, Brandon? That would be great. We will be right back with more... For Brandon Weicker. While we go to break, let me put in a word for my good friend, Solar Sandy. She is fantastic. She brought integrity back to solar in Arizona. And the real difference between Solar Sandy and other solar companies is that not only does she have great integrity, she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's super important that when going solar, you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy is the right way. She wants to put more of your hard-earned money back in your pocket. When you go solar, Solar Sandy will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months, and Solar Sandy's promotion for the first families. First 50 families who sign up for her is they'll receive a $1,000 signing bonus. That's right. No solar panel payments, no power bills for 12 months, and a $1,000 bonus at signing. No better time to go solar with Solar Sandy than right now. Go to AskSolarSandy.com. That's AskSolarSandy.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have Brandon Weikert with us, our foreign and defense policy expert, publisher of the Weikert Report, and author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Right before the break, Brandon, we were just talking about the um, the slow and steady, um, maybe it was fast, you tell me, but at least the steady march towards China claiming something like, if not something in fact, close to first-tier status in a way the Soviet Union never really was with us. For them and us, it was mostly military. As you were outlining up until about Deng Xiaoping, it was uh, mostly military, yeah? Yes, and so because of that, 
Um, I think that the time to have clipped China's Communist Party's wings was the moment that um, Truman, President Harry Truman, decided to abandon China uh, during its uh, civil war, uh, in which we were ostensibly supporting Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Army. And then after they were slowly losing and retreating, uh, we basically said, oh, well, we'll let them we'll let them flee to what was then called Formosa, what is now known as Taiwan. And, uh, you know, Mao Zedong declared victory in 1949. And interestingly, it was during his victory speech uh, when the CCP, uh, you know, took control of, of Beijing and announced the government of, of China would be his Communist Party's government. Uh, Mao also made the comment that now we will... Uh, we will oh, we will overtake Great Britain and uh, catch up to the Americans. Mm-hmm. And so that that was really the moment in 1949 when we really should have really punched the Chinese Communist Party out, uh, and we didn't. And ever since then, we've sort of dithered. And then again, the Korean War, um, we we ended up lo- not losing, but entering a stalemate in that conflict that persists until this day in many respects, because at the last minute, uh, when we were about to win, uh, MacArthur's forces got too close to the Yalu River, separating North Korea from southern China, and 300,000 Chinese troops came screaming across the border and pushed uh, MacArthur's forces all the way back to the South Korean coastline. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, the only way we could have really regained any of that ground that this was discussed, and this was why MacArthur was fired by Truman, the only way that we could have regained that was to launch preemptive nuclear strikes against uh, the Chinese forces uh, in order to roll them back because they were so dug in to North Korea. Uh, so those are sort of the military inflection points, in my opinion. And then I think beyond that, the the, the greatest mistakes we made on the sort of socioeconomic side was uh, normalizing relations in the 1970s with Mao and then Carter agreeing to the Shanghai communique of 79, which basically we abandoned the Taiwan uh, security pact we had. Well, we abandoned looking at Taiwan as the only legitimate government of China, which we had done since they were pushed out of China mainland by the CCP. Uh, That ended. And Taiwan basically became a quasi-state, and then China became the only legitimate uh, Chinese government of, of, of that country that we recognized, when in fact there were two uh, still, even today. Uh, and then another thing that we did was uh, bring in 2001, we brought China into the World Trade Organization and basically made them you know, almost an equal with the United States and the other Western powers in terms of their economic might, and that opened up all kinds of new opportunities for China to exploit, and they did with great aplomb. And now today, you have China that's not just the sweatshop of the world, but they are now rapidly becoming a high-tech, not just imitator of American technology, but an actual innovator. And I would encourage anybody who questions my claim on that to go visit Shenzhen sometime. Go visit the marketplace there. Go to Shanghai. Think about what Shanghai was 10 years ago and where it is now. And if you look at what's going on in terms of China's growth, they're not slowing down. And so, um, you know, history belongs to those, the future belongs to those who want it more. And it looks like right now, at least, China wants it more. I am heartened, though, 
by the Biden administration's kind of overall desire to cut off China from accessing our high-tech computer capabilities and also to look at infrastructure as a form of comprehensive national power that we can use to build ourselves up in order to compete across the board with China. I don't know if it's too little too late, and I don't know if it's just going to eventuate in one big payout for the Democratic Party rather than actually putting money where it needs to go in high-tech innovation R&D here. Uh, but uh, he, Biden is at least talking the right things, and it seems that there is a degree of continuity much needed between the former Trump administration and the Biden administration, at least in general, on the need to stand up to China. Do you think that uh, the Olympics will be uh, part of this uh, political ball game uh, next year? Uh, the chance, the possibilities, how, how high are the possibilities the U.S. will boycott and should the U.S. boycott? Well, it's already now a political hot potato. Okay. Um, personally, um, I don't really care about the Olympics. I, I you know, per, per, I mean, look, we were there. In the Can Olympics I tell you something? I've always hated them. Yeah, I just think there's. I've always hated them. Exception of maybe basketball and hockey. Nobody uh, that's the winner. Yeah. Olympics. I don't really care. But they're big um, for everyone else. <laughs> you yeah, and I yeah, are the outliers. Honestly, I, I mean, if they had football, like American football, I understand. Maybe. But, uh, you Pro know. wrestling, um, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I guess uh, my assumption is right now it looks like we're not going to go through with going to the Olympics, although I think that could change because there is an argument, and I was reading Foreign Policy magazine, and they were making this argument. There is an argument that if we don't do this, it's actually going to, in a way, Feed the high ground to China. Mm -hmm. um, we need to be making our presence felt everywhere. And this is actually one of the only reasons why I'm somewhat opposed to pulling out of international organizations like the UN as much as I hate it. Every time we start pulling back from these international organizations, China moves rapidly to fill the void. And on the one hand, you go, that's great. Who cares? It's their money to waste, not ours. But on the other hand, China has the way, has the ability then to normalize their behavior and to get many more countries dependent on them than who already are, uh, beyond who already are dependent on them. And that actually makes us lose in the long term a lot of our influence and standing in the world system and could redound to China's benefit at our expense. One of my listeners who's listening into the uh into the conversation with you and me, Brandon, is rather than talking about the Olympics right now, how about hardening our grid against EMP attacks? Yes. Yeah. I, I, yes. Yes. And in fact, this has been one of my biggest complaints about the infrastructure bill. A lot of Republicans, I think, are way off the map on this one when they're mocking the infrastructure proposals and they're making fun of it. And I completely disagree with our party on this. All one. right. Hold Biden's that thought. Right. We'll, we'll toss yeah. it around when we get back. That's fine. Thank you. Uh, and I want to talk a little Middle East with you as well and a little Taiwan yeah. before we get to the Middle East. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Brandon Weikert with us. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report, WeikertReport.com. Uh, Brandon, we were just before the break talking a little bit about um, China, the Olympics, uh, and infrastructure. And you were saying you, you take a perhaps a dissenting opinion on the infrastructure legislation. 
Yes. So as I wrote recently in my Asia Times column probably two weeks ago, and I think we discussed it briefly back then, you and I, basically um, the Chinese have what's known as the Comprehensive National Power Assessment, CNP. Uh, it is a very dynamic and interesting way that allows Chinese policymakers to compare relative national power of their own country with that of others. Um, the Soviets used to do the old correlation of forces. This is even more, I think, intensive, and I think it's more accurate. And basically, they don't just look at military-to-military power assessment. They don't just look at how many guns or bombs or bullets you have. They want to know cultural, whose culture is stronger, who has more martial prowess, uh, who, you know, what, what are gender relations doing to a country? Uh, how, how is the domestic political scene impacting uh, the ability of a country to engage on the foreign stage, et cetera? It's economic power factors heavily. And so, this, so infrastructure is a huge component of the Chinese CNP. And this is why China for the last 15 years has been pouring money into not just roads and bridges. Republicans are fixated on infrastructure only needing roads and bridges. It's that something from the 1910s. we got to get beyond that. Mm -hmm. The Chinese consider infrastructure not just that. They consider it electronic. They consider it, um, you know, human capital, the people of the country. That's an investment. Those are actual economic units. They're the producers. They're the consumers. And so they look at that, and they have assessed that at the very least, China is now equal to the United States in virtually every single comprehensive national power uh, uh, assessment. And so I think the Biden administration is rightly starting to change the definition of what infrastructure is. Uh, maybe they're changing it too much to include payouts to Democratic Party allies. That's wrong. But in terms of things like investing in human capital, in terms of things like investing in high-tech research and development, we have not done that in decades in this country. It's all been left to the private sector. And the private sector and venture capital are not good to do it on their own. They have to have a degree of risk reduction to these new technology investments. And that comes from the taxpayer. And we did that with Silicon Valley. China's been doing that for at least a decade over there. It's why Shenzhen is now such an economic dynamo and technological R&D hub. Um, and so... We need to look at, at uh, this the same way, and I think the Republicans are way off the mark on this, um, and I hope that they come around. I'm hoping that they can, they can negotiate with Biden, force him to not do just Democratic Party payoffs, but actually fixate on things like bettering human capital, building out high-tech R&D innovation clusters with, high, with tax dollars so that we spearhead the new industrial revolution uh, the way that China's been trying, so that we can enhance in the long term our comprehensive national power relative to that of the Chinese. And right now it's too close for comfort, if you ask me, and we need to do more. And, I, and so I think that the Biden administration is actually, and, and you know, it, it, it hurts me to say this, but I actually think the Biden administration has been pretty good on this as well. Um, and so let's, we'll, you know, I'm, I'm going to give them a shot. Good. All right. Let me ask you this, um, because at a certain point we do run out of uh, – Leverage, I suppose. Steve Hayward over at um, at the Powerline blog uh, is writing about um, 
Chinese military stepping up military exercises close to yes. Taiwan, right? Um, he says <laughs> President Trump remarked a couple years back that if China invaded t- Taiwan, there's not a damn thing we could do about it. Perhaps, perhaps not. Um, but uh, it sure would change everything if uh, if China did make a move on Taiwan. Can you talk to us about that when we come back? Yeah, well, uh, they will make a move, but I will talk. They to will, you and you will. Okay, <laughs> I'm Seth Leibson. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest, publisher of the Weikert Report. Brandon, China moving on Taiwan. Um, Prelude to an invasion. Uh, What happens? What's happening and what happens? Well, I think right now China is doing two things. I think they're testing their newfound capabilities. They have now, I think, three aircraft carriers, definitely two. And they're probably, I think, if they haven't got the third one yet, they're still building it. It'll be it'll be close to be, being on the sea soon. So they're they're testing their new capabilities, uh, and then there's also the added issue of they just had this very frosty meeting with the Biden administration. I think many in Beijing were assuming the Biden team would be nothing more than supplicants to Beijing, and it turns out that the Biden administration is actually surprising everyone and is consistently standing tough, at least in general. Uh, to China, and uh, now they're freaking out uh, in China because they were really thinking this would be their year. Um, I think that whether it's now or in two years, I think that they are testing their uh, their technology, they are testing their capabilities, they're trying to send a strong signal to Washington and the region that China, not Washington, not the United States, is the superpower in the region. And you all had better get out of our way because we're going to do something big very soon. And you're not going to be able to see us coming and you're not going to be able to stop us. And uh, so that's what this is about, is they're, they're doing all those things. And it is the Chinese regime since 1949 has never, ever walked back from their claim that Taiwan is nothing more than a breakaway rebel province. They have never once entertained notions that Taiwan is an independent country in any way. I would remind your audience that even after uh, Taiwan abandoned its notion that it was, in fact, the legal and legitimate uh, government, not only on Taiwan, but actually for China as well, they did that back in the 80s, China never once met them in the middle. The Chinese regime continued to double down and say, no, no. You are a breakaway province, and one way or the other, we will bring you to heel. And uh, they have behaved accordingly. Meanwhile, the United States has gone through these iterations where we come close to seeing that China will never be cowed in this way, and then we kind of vacillate and go back to something else. And and every new administration thinks that it can get the the deal of a lifetime uh, from Beijing, but Beijing is never interested. And now Beijing is rich enough and they have invested enough in high-tech R&D, and they are integrated enough into the world system where they no longer have to play nice with us and and entertain these notions. And so that's where we are right now. We are headed toward a world war. I also think you should be looking at Russia right now because this administration seems intent on starting a war with Russia, uh, which I think is a mistake at this point. Um, And so it's not looking pretty for us right now. Where's the inflection point with Russia? Where would the war start? How would it start? 
It's going to be over Crimea, uh-huh. ostensibly, but Ukraine in general. Uh-huh. Um, and this is the basis of my next article for the Asia Times. But basically, um, the Ukrainian government, and look, I get it. They were wronged in 2014. That Crimea was stolen from them. I get all that. I understand why they want to reclaim it. But let's face it, geopolitics is about you know how much leverage you have, how much juice you have. And Ukraine just doesn't have it in comparison to Russia, not without America and NATO backstopping them. And who in America wants their kids to go fight and die uh, in a, in a uh, Russian-Ukrainian war over Crimea? And NATO, for all of their hemming and hawing about how serious Russia, uh, the Russian threat is, the lead NATO power, and let's face it, the European lead power, it's militarily France, but economically, even more importantly, it's Germany. And Germany has no desire to pick a fight with Russia. In fact, they're doing greater levels of business with Russia. So the fact that Ukraine's poking the, the, the Russian bear with this law that says that they will, as a matter of Ukrainian law, restore Crimea to Ukraine to, to Ukrainian control no matter what, and the fact that the Biden administration is calling up the, the Ukrainian leadership saying, Go all the way. Keep pushing. We're behind you. And the fact that most of NATO is definitely not on board with that, you're, you're now having a crisis being created where the Russians are going to say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to see your cards and raise you, mm. and they're going to try to invade eastern Ukraine, take more of Ukraine away, make it a rump state, and then they're going to say, your move, NATO, and NATO's going to be bickering with itself, and it's going to be rendered impotent. Is there a um, that? Thank you for that, Brandon. That outlining that. Is there also a concern with China wanting to make the yuan its its currency, the 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 the, the rival currency to the dollar in America? Uh, it, right now, it's still in its infancy. This threat, but it will grow. I'm very concerned about China's digital currency. I saw Peter Thiel was talking about how Bitcoin could be used as a strategic cudgel against. Um, against the United States fiat currency, the dollar. Um, I'm much more actually concerned, and I briefed the DOD on this two months ago with James Carafano, uh, the, uh, the Heritage Foundation, and, and I, what I was saying in that briefing was, look, um, the digital yuan, as China's power, economic power grows, the digital yuan and the, will become more potent and more significant. And one way or the other, we know that there are not just China, but many other countries have been looking to diversify the world's currency off of the reserve currency of the dollar into many other things. And it's only a matter of time before, yes, whether it's a digital yuan or China's hard currency yuan, uh, that that will rival our own. Because let's face it, China's economy is too powerful. Inevitably, their monetary threat will will match the fiscal threat. Hold that thought right there, Brandon. Let me pick up with you on the other side of this. One one, one quick sec. We will be right back with more for Brandon Weicker. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Brandon Weikert has been our guest. Brandon, thanks for spending so much time with us on China. Right thanks before, for having me. Yeah, well, of course. Right before the break, you were talking a little bit about the fiscal and monetary concerns vis-a-vis China. If, 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 if you think they're at their infancy on that? Yeah, they, they still are, but it's growing. I mean, I remember in 2018 when Saudi Arabia let uh, China trade oil uh, on the uh, petro yuan for the first time, and it went gangbusters. Uh, the French were the biggest proponents of this. And there you go again. Thank you, France. Um, and uh, so it, it's going to continue, especially 
But, you know, the one issue that we should all be concerned about to a point uh, is the devaluing of our currency vis-a-vis all the spending that we've been doing and that we will continue to do. Um, I don't know how that ends. Uh, the Biden people say it's not going to be a problem, that it's part of the macro uh, super fiscal cycle and whatever. And OK, fine, maybe. Um, but, um, you know, let's hope, cross fingers, that they're right, because if not, then we're going to be in a whole new dynamic. And I think this is actually where I would say, and I'm not advising anyone to do anything, but I would say as a hedge, I would I would buy Bitcoin. Uh, gold's another good one, but Bitcoin probably right now, cryptocurrency in general would be good to have because inflation, I think, is two years away, and that's only going to hurt our currency and our standing. So who knows? I don't know. I'm not an economist, though. No, I, <laughs> I'm not either, and I have been fascinated by this Bitcoin thing just because of so many friends who are in, involved in it. And yeah. um, I got to tell you, I can't, I can't begin to understand it, but <laughs> but but it seems like it's doing something right. My gosh, yeah. go from eleven thousand to sixty thousand or whatever it has in the past five months. It's an incredible thing. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible thing. Mm-hmm. Brandon, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. You bet. And we'll talk next week about your Asia Times column and everything else. Yes, please. Much much appreciated. Brandon Weikert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower and publisher of the Weikert Report. Your hour coming up, 602-508-0960. Anything on your mind. We've got a lot more for you, but happy to entertain anything you got as well. I'm Seth Leibson, and we'll be right back.